The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. Thank you all for listening this week. I greatly appreciate it. We have a packed show for you guys. First, Ben Rhodes calls in from an undisclosed European capital. He had just been at the Munich Security Summit where he was maneuvering his way around the blob. Steve Bannon has been in Europe, so we talked about that for a while. We also talked about reports that the Trump administration is thinking about selling the Saudis the infrastructure you need to create nuclear energy. Seems like maybe a bad idea. Then I have a conversation in studio with my former boss, the former National Security Advisor of the United States, Tom Donilon. I worked for Tom for a very long time. He was an incredible mentor and friend to me, and I was so grateful to have him in studio. We really went on just a tour of the world. We started with, like, how did you get that job? How does one become National Security Advisor? Tom was born in Rhode Island, worked in politics, and had this incredible career. So we talked about how that happened. Talked about, like, what his day-to-day was like. What was it like leading the PDB every day? What were some of your best days and your worst days? And then, you know, Tom really played a role in the White House as an emissary for Barack Obama. He went to China constantly to spend time with the senior leadership there. He went to Russia to meet with President Medvedev or Putin. And so we talked about those trips and those relationships and his assessment of how Trump is now dealing with them. We also got into the upcoming North Korea summit version two between President Trump and Kim Jong-un and Tom's assessment of the potential risks of those talks. And, you know, we also talked about nuclear weapons, some other you know big ticket issues. It reminded me of the days when I used to go into Tom's office with a press request and learn more in 10 minutes than I ever could have from reading articles, intelligence, press reports, books. I mean, the guy just is an encyclopedic memory of events and places and things. And I learned a lot just seeing him again this week. So I think you will love the conversation. So with no further ado, I'm going to start with the conversation with Ben Rhodes. On the line from, I don't even know where you are, Ben. I believe you're in a European capital as part of a, a book tour. Where the hell are you? Yeah, I'm in Madrid, uh, what? which is my last stop on a two-week European book tour. Oh, so, Madrid. Uh, my book came out eight months ago in the United States, but I've been uh, all across Europe uh, on this trip. The world as it is, people. Get it while it's hot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in addition to being in Madrid, you were just in Munich at the Munich Security Summit, which is just like, it is like a blob of paradise. And if people don't know what the blob is, yeah. it's, it's a, uh, a term you coined for the D.C. foreign policy establishment. What were you doing in Munich? And were you there when... Uh, Vice President Pence sent his greetings and salutations from Donald Trump to the world, and literally no one clapped or reacted in any way. Yeah, so I was in Munich, uh, but it was kind of a microcosm of my experience with the blob in general, because I was there on my book tour. So I missed Vice President Pence, because I was actually speaking to several hundred young people at a university in Munich, <laughs> kind of the pod state of the world audience That's uh, in another country. But I was around the conference, and I went to the Munich Security Conference, and I interacted with the blob and studied their habits. 
and, and definitely got a sense of the reaction to Vice President Pence's remarks there in Munich. The reporting coming out of it seemed to suggest that the Munich Security Summit was a reminder of how isolated the U.S. seems from traditional allies in Europe. Is that a fair characterization and overreaction? Like, what were you hearing from people you talked to? Well, actually, you know, I, I think that just as important as Pence's speech was Angela Merkel's speech. Yes. Uh, and that's actually what a lot of people were talking about. You know, Angela Merkel gave a speech in which she did not hold back in really going after Trump. I mean, her entire speech was kind of a rebuke of Trump's approach to the world and Trump's pulling out of agreements and Trump's, you know, she said, uh, you know, declaring German cars a national security threat. <laughs> and she said, you know, look, uh, we make BMWs in South Carolina. How is that a threat to the United States? And, uh, and so what you saw was not just uh, this kind of silent response to Vice President Pence, who had a kind of Jeb Bush, please clap moment uh, as he gave you know, a bunch of Trump slogans uh, to the rest of the world. But you also have leaders like Merkel, who are now very comfortable just eviscerating Trump and his worldview in front of a global audience. People are not shy anymore about not just you know, being silent when Pence talks, but also about voicing the disagreement with Trump's Iran policy and his NATO policy and his approach to Russia and his approach to the entire world. And you did get a very strong sense that the Europeans, like much of the world, are trying to wait Trump out, and they're just trying to wait and see what happens in the 2020 election. And they're not at all shy about expressing their enormous concern about what's happening in the U.S. and about the direction of Trump's Trump policy. Yeah, I mean, the, the clip I saw from Merkel's speech was her expressing great confusion uh, by the fact that German automobiles, many of which are assembled in the United States, could be declared a threat to national security by the U.S. and thus have a tariff slapped on them. And then they cut to a reaction shot of everyone in the crowd clapping and very happy, uh, and a stone-faced Ivanka Trump who was there for some reason. Well, I, Tommy, I heard something pretty interesting from a number of the participants who were there, which is that you know, when Pence gave his speech, he gave a speech that he could have delivered, you know, at a Trump rally. Yeah. You know? uh, Donald Trump is the leader of the free world. Silence. You know, uh, Donald Trump has restored American standing. Silence. Uh, we must uh, pull out of the Iran nuclear agreement, silence. And what I heard from a lot of people there is that Pence seemed to be delivering the speech to two people. Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner were sitting in the front row. And, and what I heard is that Pence seemed to be looking at them for approval, <laughs> as if the views of the entire world don't matter. The only views that matter are the daughter and son-in-law of the president. And, you know, you talk to people at this conference, and and, you know, they react with incredulity at how bizarre it is that why is Ivanka Trump there in the first place? And why is Jared Kushner there in the first place? And why are these the people who seem to be the most powerful players in the most powerful nation in the world? And, you know, it makes us look ridiculous. You know, one of the things that is useful about traveling is, you know, in America, like we're used to the kind of craziness of our politics. When you look at it from abroad, it looks even stranger. You know, like, what is Mike Pence talking about in these capitals? You know, he 
He had been in Poland at a conference that was supposed to highlight international support for their Iran policy. And instead, when he demanded that Europe leave the Iran nuclear agreement, he got met with silence. And, and the Europeans made very clear to me that they have no interest at all in leaving the Iran nuclear agreement, that they see no reason to follow the leadership of the United States on that issue. And so, you know, what, what you get come away with is a sense that we are totally isolated and nobody wants to go along with this project. Yeah. I love that Jared still claims that he is traveling to work on his uh, Middle East peace deal. He's like a dilettante LA kid that's been working on a book or a screenplay for like a year, two years, going on three. No one's ever seen the thing. Not sure if it actually exists, but you know, a lot of time in uh, coffee shops <laughs> with final draft up for Jared. Yeah, we're just right on the cusp of Middle East peace. Yeah, we're almost there, man. One meeting away. Another story that jumped out at you and me today was a story that we are preparing or in the midst of providing the Saudis with the stuff you need to make nuclear power. That seems like an interesting follow-up to a leader of Saudi Arabia who had a journalist murdered and dismembered, uh, you know, like a month ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean... There are two elements to this. You know, one is, as a matter of policy, you know, we're supposed to try to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons to the Middle East. And you know, providing Saudi Arabia with the raw materials that could then allow them to shift to the potential of pursuing a nuclear weapon, you know, is the opposite of what should be the normal U.S. policy interest. I mean, also, if you look at Mohammed bin Salman, you know, a man who has brutally murdered a journalist in a consulate, a man who has pursued a policy in Yemen that has put millions of people's lives at risk, someone who's shown a kind of, you know, sociopathic tendencies. This is not the kind of person that you want to deliver nuclear power to. So it, it makes no sense as a matter of foreign policy. There's no U.S. foreign policy interest that is advanced by building nuclear power plants in Saudi Arabia. And there are actually a lot of U.S. interests that are undercut by building nuclear power plants in Saudi Arabia. By the way, that will only encourage the Iranians to get their own nuclear weapons. You know, if they look at Saudi Arabia and they look at us building nuclear power plants, the risk is, you know, the Iranians say, okay, you know, now we have to, we have to restart our program. But the other thing is it raises this question of corruption. And, mm-hmm. You know, why is it that Mike Flynn and all these Trump people were so eager to make these deals for nuclear power plants? Why is Donald Trump still reportedly considering this proposal? And, you know, I think the Democratic House really needs to dig into and investigate this question of what is motivating Trump. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the obvious answer is it, it could be money, either money that is already flowing into Trump and Kushner properties or money that is promised on the back end. Either way, it's uh, something that we should all be worried about. Agreed. Hopefully Congress will actually do some investigation into that whole set of meetings, the deal, everything else. The other person with you this week in Europe was Steve Bannon. Did you guys travel together or was he there independently? It feels like every time I come to Europe, it feels like <laughs> I'm literally walking in the footsteps of Steve Bannon. Um, <laughs> you know, I've been doing interviews across France and Germany and Spain and the name Bannon comes up, you know, more than anybody. Uh, and I think Americans don't realize what's happened with Steve Bannon. You know, he gets kind of chased out of the White House, seems to be discredited. 
He's actually opened up an office, Tommy, in Brussels. I didn't know this until I you know, was on this most recent trip. And essentially, he's got this base in Brussels, and he travels around Europe, and he travels around trying to bolster far-right parties. And so in France, you know, you have the far-right National Front movement, and Bannon is along with that. In Germany, where you really don't want far-right parties, you don't want neo-Nazis, uh-huh. you have this new party called the AFD uh, that has emerged uh, on the far-right. And here in Spain, where I'm now, there's a new far-right party called Vox, uh, not the website that we all enjoy reading, uh, but the same spelling. And, you know, they are, uh, all of them have in common that they're focused on immigration. And it's a familiar message, right? The problems should be blamed on the immigrants, and people should vote on fear. And there's this very real concern here. There are European elections coming up in the spring. There's an election coming up here in Spain, and Bannon is traveling around and kind of peddling the same bullshit, uh, the same hate, the same division, the same media strategies that he used in the United States here in Europe. That is not the American export that we want uh, to Europe. You know, uh, no. we've got Mike Pence giving speeches about Donald Trump as the leader of the free world, and we've got Steve Bannon teaching literally far-right parties in Europe uh, how to demonize immigrants and how to win elections based on fear. Yeah. And, and, and like, we all know that I dislike Steve Bannon enormously, but the broader context is important, too, because we have a, a White House and a State Department that has all but given up on democracy promotion. And I don't mean that in the awful Bush sense where we invade countries to encourage them to be democracies, but where we we push for democratic norms and institutions and freedom of the press and, and universal rights the way presidents, Republican and Democrat, have for decades, for centuries even. Like, Trump has abandoned that. Yeah, he's abandoned them. And I have to say, you know, in each of these countries, you know, I meet with progressive activists, and they feel totally cut off. You know, they, they wish the United States was playing its normal role of pushing back against far-right nationalism and, and neo-Nazis. And, you know, what I tell them, you know, is that people like Steve Bannon, and Trump, you know, what they count on is cynicism. You know, they want young people to feel like they're powerless. They want young people to feel like this wave of right-wing nationalism is inevitable. So it's not even worth voting or, you know, unless you support the far right, you're going to lose. And, and, and I was very worried by this sense of defeatism, you know, that mm-hmm. the future belongs to people like Trump and people like Viktor Orban in Hungary and these far-right parties that are emerging, and Steve Bannon is coming here, and he's going, to, he's going to help them win these elections. The United States normally should be playing the role of organizing the response to that and pushing back against undemocratic values. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen for two years, but I think that makes it even more important for civil society and media and, and others to say, you know, this is not inevitable, and that if young people get involved and they vote and they organize, the same message that you guys use so well in Party of America in the United States, that, you know, that that can happen here too. Young people can reject this. And again, it's depressing the extent to which people feel like the United States has vacated that role of yeah. standing up for certain values, and that in fact the, the face of America is Steve Bannon. We can do better than that. <laughs> we yeah. should do better than that. And I hope it's something, you know, we can continue to focus on because, you know, if Europe 
you know, in some ways, it's easier in America, right? We just had to win one election in 2020 to get rid of Trump. You know, yep. Here, you have elections across the whole continent, and we have to beat back these far-right movements across the continent. And I know that can happen, but um, only if people feel like it's possible. Well, Ben, looks like you're going to have to park your ass in Europe for a little bit longer and be a counterweight to all this Bannon messaging. I hope, you, uh, I hope I you're ready. I feel a little bit like that, Tommy. I feel like, like, uh, like it might be necessary to set up shop here. But I will tell you, there are some friends of the pod over here. You know, I, I would walk into the Munich Security Conference and uh, the blob, you know, was there and that is what it is. But then these kind of young people working there would come up to me and kind of almost whisper to me, like, I listen to Pod Save the World. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm glad that we have listeners in these countries and I hope they continue to be part of the conversation. Yeah, me too. And frankly, let's find a bunch of them and get them on the show because it would be interesting to hear their perspective as young people in countries that are growing they, they uh, love, uh, authoritarian. They love Lammy. Who doesn't? They, they love the, you know, David Lammy is you know, building a following here. You know, So there, there are leaders like that in Europe. There is leadership. There is progressive leadership. That's you know, good. And, and hopefully we can put a spotlight on some of it. Well, that's good. We'll, we'll end on a high note because that does make me feel better unless there's uh, anything else that's really jumped out at you from the week. No, no. I think we covered it. And I know we've got you know, Tom Donilon, uh, our former boss. Yes. Uh, so uh, you used to prepare him for interviews like the one you conducted. I know. So, I, I was uh, I was brutally difficult. You you will hear it. It was it was harsh. Uh, no, but Tom yeah. will take us on the tour of the globe, so that will be interesting. I think people will really enjoy that. All right, buddy. Well, good luck with the end of the book tour. Travel safe. I'm excited to have you back in studio so we can go through all the weird events that have been happening as we speak. Yeah, no, I'll see you back in the studio. Can't wait to be back in uh, sunny LA. <laughs> Me too. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. All right, see you. See you, bud. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. 
you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out. We've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash crookedworld. And here is a conversation with former National Security Advisor Tom Donnelly. I am honored to have in the Crooked Media HQ today, President Obama's former National Security Advisor, my former boss, Tom Donnelly, Rhode Island's finest, I should have added. Thank you so much for being here. I'm sorry it's monsooning literally as we speak. Tommy, it's great to be here and great to see you. It's great to see you. Uh, So many memories come flooded back of literally hours and hours and hours in the Situation Room grinding through really hard issues and uh and watching the seriousness with which you and the team around you took those issues and wondering if uh that's currently happening today i don't think i think well it's a different approach right yeah it is um, a different approach. it's a very different approach and you know and, and in all seriousness you know president trump has brought uh, a different style a different approach to u.s leadership and uh-huh. a different approach to making foreign policy yeah, yeah. Uh, and which has been a real departure from the way that American presidents have approached foreign policy for the last three quarters of a century. Decades. Um, and uh, a very different style. It's been highly disruptive. And we can talk about this during the course of the broad podcast. And with, without the kinds of process, I think, mm-hmm. that ensure that you can make the best decisions possible. Yeah, you know, Dwight Eisenhower once said that good process won't guarantee you a great outcome, but a bad process will almost always guarantee <laughs> yeah. that you're not going to get an optimal outcome. And I think there really has been a lack of that kind of really serious process. And some of this has been due to the fact that they haven't been able to staff the government Mm -hmm. and there's been a high level of turnover. But a lot of it is due to the president's approach, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. I can't wait to get to all of that. But the first thing I'd love to ask you or have you talk about is how the hell you become national security advisor? Because there is no linear path to sitting in the, the upper suite, as it's called, the office you occupied in the corner of the West Wing. How did you get there? Like, what prepared you for that job? Well, basically, work. I've worked for, been fortunate enough, had the privilege to work for three U.S. presidents during the course of my career. I grew up quite interested in politics. I grew up in Rhode Island, as you mentioned, with a family that was kind of immersed in local politics, and it was the, uh, the topic of conversation every evening mm-hmm. at the table. I ended up in Washington, and right out of school, through the help of a couple of important professors, Norm Ornstein, who's mm-hmm. become obviously a very prominent political yeah. scientist in Washington, and his colleague, Michael Robinson, who recommended me really a couple of weeks after I graduated from college uh, to friends of theirs who worked in the Carter White House. So I worked for President Carter yeah. uh, and began in the political sphere, um, uh, ultimately doing his delegate selection work and managing the convention in 1980. And you that, were like 21, 22? I went to work in the White House when I was 22. Were you uh, the youngest person in the whole building? I was the youngest one of, of President Carter's aides in the, uh, in the White House and then ended up doing the campaign in 1980. Of course, that campaign... <laughs> was, uh, you know, really the last real floor fight uh, yeah. for the nomination of the Democratic Party. Against Ted Kennedy. Against uh, Senator Kennedy. And we went to the floor of the convention in Madison Square Garden with the, really with the nomination at issue. And so I managed that. Uh, that must have I been managed wild. That, that, that convention when I was 24 years old. <laughs> Unbelievable. That's a hell of a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I guess that, I mean, so. It was, but at that age, you don't really, you don't really have a full sense. It's maybe it enables you to do the job. Because right. you don't have as full a sense of the responsibility right. as you might when you're older. Right. But it was a wonderful experience. I worked with wonderful people. And President Carter has been a friend ever since. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I worked for President Clinton. 
And when then I first prepared him for his debates, led the debate preparation team right. in 1992, and then went as chief of staff of the State Department. But in between had been a turn from politics to foreign policy mm -hmm. under the mentorship of uh, someone who was a, a leading citizen of this city, Warren Christopher, mm -hmm. uh, who, when I started practicing law, came to me and said, you know, there's a different way to do this. Um, I think he'd really enjoy national security and foreign policy. And he really put me on a path for now over 30 years of you know, serious study and practice in, uh, in foreign policy in the mid-1980s. And by 1992, I was the chief of staff of the State Department and then came into the Obama administration in a similar way, you know, helping to lead the debate preparation, mm -hmm. as you know, Tommy, when we first started working together for then-Senator Obama uh, in the uh, 2008 campaign and then was the director of the State Department and National Security Council transition and went in as deputy national security advisor and the national security advisor. So... It's a long path. It yeah. was a non-traditional path. You know, I'm not a I'm not a military officer or a PhD in international relations, but it was a it was a path through three administrations and um, great mentors, and of course a lot of fortune. So you had incredible mentors that got you to become national security advisor. I had mentors who led me to sell underwear ads on uh, mm -hmm. radio on your phone. Mm -hmm. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for all you right. did for me. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I, I got to watch you every day firsthand mm -hmm. and the way, I mean, every White House job can just be upended by events, right? I mean, for us, it was, you think you're going to work all day on Afghanistan, North Korea tests a nuclear weapon, and that's all consuming for weeks. But a constant for you was the president's daily intelligence briefing. Every morning, yeah. you led a small group of people in the Oval Office for an intel briefing with Obama. By the time you left, I think I remember counting, you had done it 700 times. Can you take us in the room and sort of what that briefing is like and, and how that conversation unfolds every day? Well, it's part of the job of the National Security Advisor. There's multiple roles. We might start with that. The, sure. The National Security Advisor runs the National Security Council staff, which is about 400 people in the White House, who are the principal staff to the, uh, to the president. Mm -hmm. The National Security Advisor chairs the so-called Principals Committee, which is the cabinet-level committee that advises the president, uh, serves the options up to him, uh, dives into the issues uh, mm -hmm. that the country needs uh, addressed. And our, you know, in the first term, when I chaired the committee, it was, a, it was a really a, an incredible group of people, from, yeah. um, from Vice President Biden to Secretary Clinton, Secretary Gates, the IA Director Panetta, General Petraeus. You know, a lot of big Holbrook, personalities. Right? It was a lot of big personalities around the table, <laughs> as, you can, as, you well, as you well remember. You know, you're responsible for the interaction between the president and foreign leaders, including summits, uh, which we worked a lot on yeah. together. Uh, and you coordinate the intelligence, diplomacy, military aspects and homeland security aspects of the United States government. I was you know, blessed to have you know, tremendous deputies, right? You know, yeah. People reflect on this. The deputies uh, that I uh, worked with were Dennis, Dennis McDonough, uh, John Brennan, and you know, Mike Froman, right. Ben Rhodes. Um, so we had, we, had a, we had a really terrific, yeah. uh, terrific crew. Now, the, as you said, one of the responsibilities for the National Security Advisor is to provide the president's daily briefing, typically called you know, the PDB, the mm -hmm. president's daily brief. The history is interesting. Um, those briefings began during the administration of John Kennedy when he wanted to have an, an intelligence checklist that he could work through hmm. because he had been surprised in the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Right, right, so two right, things right. happened. They established kind of this daily input of intelligence to the president in a formal way. And also, Tommy, they established Situation Room, yeah. which we're quite familiar with, which is really kind of the hub of managing national security, international affairs in the basement of the, uh, of the White House, staffed by 
uh, professionals from around the government who come through for one and two year and one through two year tours. Really amazing people too. Really amazing people. And the you know, the idea uh, uh, today has become a highly stylized process. It's it it has the full weight of the intelligence community behind it, and what gets produced is the premier product for the intelligence community every single day that goes to the president. Now, presidents over the time have different ways of of dealing with it. Some wanted to brief to them, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the meeting. Some wanted to get it in advance and read it. Of course, our boss, President Obama, was someone who did read, right, yeah. and, wanted it, and wanted it in advance. You like to read. And he wanted to come in and ask questions. So what we would do is, you know, you'd prepare, that document would be prepared and delivered to the president. But the president would also want to know what he was going to do about the intelligence. And that was where, you know, kind of the, uh, the second part of the briefing came in. So the first part would be 10 or 15 minutes of briefing the intelligence to the president. Uh, and then you'd ask the intelligence professionals, they would not be there for the rest of the meeting because we in our administration and most administrations before us tried to separate intelligence from policy. Interesting. And then you'd have a, a, a small group led by the National Security Advisor that would react to that intelligence and work, work through it, uh, would uh, take the president through different issues that were kind of moving up through the system. And it would also allow the president every day to put his imprint uh, formally on, yeah. the, uh, on the process. Sounds like the highest stakes pop quiz I could imagine every single morning. Well, yeah, you know, and you, you know, you, you, now you prepared early, you know, really from, from six o'clock in the morning until nine or nine thirty when the president came to the Oval Office. That was really the, the principal function mm-hmm. that the National Security Council staff was working on each day was to prepare that briefing and allow another National Security Advisor to be prepared to kind of move through the issues. And it really, essentially, it was an ongoing conversation about key challenges facing the country. Uh, and it was a tour of the world most days mm-hmm. as to where we were on various issues around the world. And it allowed the president, I said, to give direction to this process each and every day. To be a fly on the wall in that meeting. I want to get into it. It's also, by the way, this is true. Uh, As you said, I think I delivered the the president's briefing over 700 times. Uh You weren't always on. And when the president would take out, you know, his Blackberry, you knew there was time to end the meeting, right? You know, you can't can't have your fastball, you know, kind of. Yeah, get uh, out of here. Every single day. Uh, But it was a, you know, it's a really important, uh, a really important part of kind of the president's management of the foreign policy process. I want to ask you about some specific issues Mm -hmm. in in a bit. But, I mean, just stepping back, when you think about your time at the White House, what days jump out at you as you reflect on being the most difficult days and decisions? And what are the best days or high points? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. I think generically, and you saw this, the most difficult days the most difficult decisions that you participate in and ultimately that a president has to make is a decision to send men and women into combat. Mm-hmm. These, these are exceedingly difficult decisions. Yeah. You know you're putting men and women at risk of casualties, deaths, and it weighs heavy. Yeah. And it should weigh heavy. Yeah. Uh, these, are, these are the hardest decisions, Tommy. And, you know, we, and we had to make a number of those decisions. When we came into office, we had a large number of troops in Iraq. We had really a failing effort in Afghanistan, yeah, right. and we had an ongoing effort against terrorism. Uh, and there were tough decisions that had to be made, including dis- dispatching U.S. Uh, servicemen and women around the world into combat and into, and into harm's way. And those were always the hardest decisions. They were the hardest decisions for the president, I think, and they are for any president. Yeah, I imagine. Um, I mean, I guess when I think of best days, I imagine the bin Laden operation must leap to mind. Well, it was an important moment in the presidency, right? Yeah. And it was, a, you know, and it was... Uh, yeah, the result, again, I think of a successful process, right? We mm-hmm. began that uh, in August of 2010 when the Central Intelligence Agency came to the, um, uh, to the White House and the president um, learned that there was a lead, the best lead, the best evidence that we had with respect to where bin Laden was that we had had since he, since he 
uh, had disappeared into the mountains of Tora Bora early in the 2000s. Mm -hmm. uh, it had really become a cold, a cold case. And the president asked for that effort to be reinvigorated at the beginning of his presidency. It was. Uh, and it was you know, an extraordinary story over two administrations, really, of, the, of our intelligence agencies kind of staying on the case and ensuring that the promise that justice would be done was fulfilled. And we did that. And then that process, you know, took place over eight months. So okay. if you begin in the summer of 2010, uh, you know, the actual operation was in May of 2011. And during the course of those eight months or so, you constantly worked on the intelligence. You then worked on the planning. You considered all the options uh, that would, uh, where you could address uh, bin Laden if he was there. It's also important to know that you know, the case was a circumstantial case. Right. This was not a direct evidence case. And Michael Morell said the case for WMD in Iraq was stronger yeah. than the case for yeah. bin Laden being in Ababa. Yeah. So it was a very, very tough set of decisions that had to be made. Um, and history was in the room. You know, it's interesting. Um, history was in the room where you had, you know, Secretary Gates, who's, who has said this in his book and other books, that he wasn't initially against the raid. Um, right. And it led largely because of the experience of the, of the United States in 1980, in the failed raid to uh, rescue the hostages in Iran, where we had a number of service people yeah, killed in the yeah. desert, and it's a terrible tragedy for the, obviously for the service people who were killed, but also for the country. Mm -hmm. um, history was in the room because, at the end of the day, I think what really tilted the president's decision and ultimately his decision, because it was a split room. Hmm. There was a split room, and he went around the room and asked on the Thursday before the operation whether people were for or against it. It was split down the middle. And what we do is we ask our presidents to make those calls. Yeah, yeah. And I'll never forget walking out with President Obama after that meeting and him heading towards the, uh, the mansion, walking down the colonnade between the West Wing and the mansion. And I, he said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll work on this tonight and I'll call you tomorrow morning with a decision. And I remember standing there watching him just walk, walk away by himself, right, with that decision on his shoulders. And that's what we ask our presidents to do. And he did and he called the next day. And... Um, we want to have with the raid. But one of the things that I think I wanted to say that, that kind of that tipped that decision, mm -hmm. right, was his confidence in the special forces. Mm -hmm. It's a unique American asset. And he had worked on many, many operations, right, uh, with the special forces, and in this case led by Admiral McRaven. And that gave him the confidence, right, yeah, that yeah. basically that if bin Laden was there, that they would address it. If he wasn't there, they would get out safely. Yeah. And so, and that's, an, that's important. And where did they come from? They came out of the tragedy in the desert in 1980 where we put together kind of joint operations and kind of a special forces operation in the United States uh, because of the failing sense. So history was in the room. It was, a, uh, I think, a courageous decision by the president. It was the correct decision, and it was executed brilliantly. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in, in hindsight, I think people think, okay, should we go get bin Laden? Obviously. But had he not been there, we would have invaded a sovereign nation, Pakistan, gone to a military town, humiliated their leadership, potentially been picked up on radar, fired at, maybe kicked down the door, where innocent civilians live, maybe killed the wrong person. I mean, it would have been a disaster. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's the entire set of circumstances. You know, everything had decision points and places where it could have gone well or gone bad, right? You know, there could have been an accident getting in or not. It was an extraordinary operation in there, right? The, the and, fucking helicopter yeah. crashed. <laughs> well, I don't, know, I don't know if I briefed it exactly that way at the time, Tommy, but yeah. we did have an accident at the beginning of the, right, right. Of, of the operation. But, again... The training, the anticipation of contingencies, yeah. you know, the focus of our special forces was extraordinary. It was one of these operations, by the way, you know, when John Brennan led a lot of the planning, uh, where we were able to kind of work through every, every contingency. But you could have had an accident. Abbottabad was a military town. You could have had a bigger reaction. 
the Pakistanis could have caught on to it earlier and we could, mm-hmm. he could have had a confrontation. There were all manner of things that, uh, that could have happened, but most were anticipated. And I yeah. think we took the right steps to kind of work it through. And of course, it was an important moment for the nation. Yet they, oh, as I said, we worked through almost every contingency, right? And you know, when we sat down for a 15-hour meeting that morning, Jeez. the night after the White House Correspondents' Dinner, yeah. where people were coming up to numbers and saying, are you going to this party, that party? Yeah, I said, no, nah, I got this thing tomorrow. Reading a good book. Got to get home, right? Yeah. But you, we, you, kind of, you kind of work it through, right? And it, it was literally a tab notebook of step-by-step kind of working through the various aspects of it. The thing that surprised me, though, uh, was after it was announced, uh, I was walking with the president and a couple of our colleagues back from the, uh, the mansion where the president and the Eastern had made the announcement, and there was this noise. Really? Remember yeah, this? And there yeah. was this noise, right? You know, and I, I remember saying to the Secret Service, what's going on here? Where, where's, that, where's that coming from? He said, he said there's a really a credible demonstration out in front of the White House, right? And so it hit me then with an important, it was an important strategic event for the country. It was also an important cathartic event. It really was. Yeah, I remember walking out. I mean, it was one or two in the morning, yeah. God knows, when we left. And there was just a crowd of people chanting USA, USA yeah. all night long. It still gives me chills to think yeah. about. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Okay, another issue you spent a ton of time on was U.S.-China relations. Yeah. You know, you were constantly taking visits to China and sitting down one-on-one with Chinese leadership. Given that history and that experience and your knowledge of these individuals, what do you make of Trump's trade war and what looks to me like a, a chilling of relations? Meanwhile, the cyber attacks, the theft of IP, yeah. the South China Sea military buildup, all those irritants still exist. Yeah. It's important to focus on the trade aspect of this, mm-hmm. but it's, a ne- it, it's not the entire story by any means. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the president has an obsessive focus on bilateral trade deficits. He considers, contrary to the advice of most every economist in the world, that if you have a surplus, you're winning. If you have a deficit, you're losing. Right, right. And, of course, it's a more complicated yes. a formula than that. So I think this is what's going on. Uh, and as you said, I've spent, a, I've spent a lot of time in China, a lot of time with the Chinese leadership uh, over the years. We are in a much more competitive phase 
between the United States and China is the first point. The second is that that competition, that competitive phase, is across a myriad of fronts. It's economics, obviously, and we're in the middle of this discussion with China about our, our deficit trade relationships, their conduct, and whether it's consistent with their obligations, which it isn't uh, in many, many cases. But it also includes military issues and includes geopolitical issues. Mm -hmm. And increasingly also it includes ideological issues, which I think we can, we can talk about. China really is putting a full alternative model uh, on offer to the, uh, to the world. And what's happened in Washington, it's been really in, around the country, is there is a really fundamental rethink underway of U.S.-China relations. Hmm. It's interesting. I think China missed this context. And I've, I've had lots of conversations with Chinese leaders about this and acquaintances in China. I think they missed the fact that, they're, that a lot of their conduct had kind of, had kind of forced this rethink hmm. in, um, in U.S.-China relations. And the rethink is bipartisan. And it's broad. And I think we'll look back on 2018 as the year when U.S. policy moved from kind of cooperative engagement uh, with China, which has really been the approach since Richard Nixon's trip in February of 1972, and certainly after the Cold War, to a much more of a, of a strategic competitor hmm. phase at this point. Does that worry you? To some extent, yeah, I'll get to the challenge, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and to some extent, this is also rooted in the fact that a story that we told ourselves about the direction of China didn't happen. Mm -hmm. The story we told ourselves didn't, you know, kind of didn't, didn't play out. What was that story? The story was that as China became wealthier, as China integrated into the political and economic institutions of the world, that it would become more liberal mm -hmm. and democratic mm -hmm. in its political system. That is not what's happening. No. <laughs> right? That's not, that is not, not what's happening. And um, so we're in a new era. Yeah, the contours of which are still being explored and developed, and we need, we'll, we'll need to develop new rules of the road going forward because this, this is going to be really the central challenge for leaders in the United States uh, coming into this, going into this century is how to manage this relationship. You know, our, our friend Graham Allison at Harvard has written a book called Destined for War, and it's, and it's an ex exploration of something called the, the Thucydides Trap where he looked back on 16 examples of where you had a dominant existing power and a rising power challenging it and what the outcomes were. And in 12 of the 16 cases, it ended up in conflict. Hmm. And so one of the real, you know, I'm not a, a believer. I, w I was skeptical at first about this because I don't think international relations is like a subset of physics, right? Sure, you sure, know, right, there's, yeah. there's a lot of human agency and you yeah. learn from history. But the tendencies, I think, are correct. So it's a really important management, I think, yeah. issue, an important issue for us to develop and approach. Last thing I'll say about this is it's manifest right now in the economics piece and the trade, the trade conversations. Those are important, and I think you know, they can be worked through, I think, hopefully. But that's not the main game that's underway right mm -hmm. now. The main game in the economic sphere really is technological competition. And I think that that's really kind of a, an effort by, you know, various, by the United States and China to really kind of seize the commanding ground for the industries and technologies of the future. Mm -hmm. And we're moving towards a place where we may be decoupling Right. Tech, the technology sectors, and we're certainly moving towards a place where the United States is undertaking very aggressive effort to go after with sees a threat from China. The technology era, Huawei is the best example of that. Yes, yeah. uh, Chinese telecom to, company. We're just arresting their uh, right. their executives in Canada right. yeah. and they're trying well, to extradite yeah, them. Yeah. Let me tell you what we're not Seems doing. Fraught. <laughs> yeah, what we're not doing. This is the missing piece for U.S.-China policy right now. We're talking a lot about how to defend ourselves against China. Mm -hmm. Right. We're talking a lot about changing their conduct. And we can change some of that, you know, I hope, I, I hope we do. That's not really the main game. Ultimately, it's about what we do. And there's no discussion, Tommy, really about that missing piece of China policy. 
what is our innovation strategy? What's our research and development levels? What are we doing about educating our, our people? What are we doing about meeting right. the challenges of artificial intelligence and the labor markets, right? What are we doing about bringing science back to the center of policymaking, which has not been the case in this administration? So I, I would urge us in, the, in kind of this U.S.-China policy to address this missing piece. Yeah, yeah. China is Does one of the- that make sense to you? Oh, yeah. China is one of the great power relationships that I know kept you very busy. Another one was Russia. Yeah. You know, I remember you spent a whole lot of time with Dmitry Medvedev, who yeah. was the brief uh, leader of, of Russia. Yeah. Uh, Vladimir Putin then came back, uh, and you spent a lot of time with him and the Russian leadership, the ambassador, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister. Again, knowing what you know about those individuals, what do you make of Trump's approach to Russia, their policy, the ongoing yeah. odd open question of whether he's compromised or why there were hundreds of contacts between Trump officials and Russian officials yeah. in the transition? Well, it's an interesting question. Indeed, I think that U.S.-Russia policy right now is one of the oddest aspects of, of, of President Trump's foreign policy. Yeah. You, know, you can understand most aspects of it at this point because he has, he has a specific approach which has emerged. It's personal. It's transactional. It's bilateral as opposed to multilateral. It's focused on trade. Russia is an exception. It, 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 there are inexplicable elements thus far to the U.S.-Russia policy from the current uh, administration. Russia today is actively hostile to the United States across the board. You know, I saw Putin the Friday night before he was not, not uh, inaugurated, and it was even clear then that he was taking Russia in a different direction. Were you, did, were you in Russia? I was in Moscow. Oh, so you went over as a... Yeah. And it was clear that he was taking Russia in a different direction. Yeah. Lots of reasons for this. As is always the case, a lot of it has to do with domestic politics. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it has to do with his image of Russia. Some of it has to do with these concepts which we, which we may consider kind of an anachronistic, spheres of influence, zero-sum outcomes, but he saw very real concepts uh, to him. And they have become, as I said, actively hostile to the United States, including in, in attacking the elections in 2016. And if to believe our intelligence services, which I do, uh, in their latest uh, global threat briefing before the Congress, and plan to do so again in 2020. Yeah. And so the resistance of the president to address these issues is, I think, a failure of policy and inexplicable. You know, the willingness of the president to really to kind of believe representation, this president to believe representations from Vladimir Putin and not the assessment of his own intelligence services mm -hmm. is kind of inexplicable. It's an odd, it's an odd, and I think... Um, dangerous part of our foreign policy, foreign policy. Now, you know, it's interesting on Russian contacts. I was the co-chair of the Clinton transition, 2016, and was charged with overseeing the planning for the, uh, for the national security aspects of the next government for a person whom everybody believed was going to be the president of the United States. I don't remember any Russian contacts. They weren't, they weren't right? calling they were not. This was an odd relationship between the Trump campaign and his associates in the Russian government. You weren't calling the Russian ambassador from your beach vacation like uh, Mike Flynn was? Yeah, well, it's, none of the, this it just hasn't been fully explained, right? You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, at this point. And it has really restricted us from putting together the kind of all of government effort to resist the kinds of interference that we saw in, uh, in 2016. And it really has caused us not to have the kind of conversation we have to have in this country, I think should be led by the leader of the free world, the president of the United States, about how to protect the democracy. Mm -hmm. This is a really important piece of this. And we're yeah. not, I've never really heard the president discuss democracy. I haven't either. No. A lot has been made of Trump's meetings with Putin. Often they were on the sides of summits. They were one-on-one, -on -one, maybe just a translator. When you heard that and you thought back, to your time staffing President Obama in one-on-one -on -one meetings with Putin or any other leader, what did that make you think and feel? 
Well, you want to have, you know, typically you want to have someone else with you when you're having a meeting with a foreign leader in order to have your record yeah. of what happened. Right. Uh, you know, there's obviously an interest in having, you know, kind of presidential records and historical records of what went on between nations uh, and between leaders. But more importantly, kind of in the kind of in the short term here, right, in kind of managing foreign policy, you want to have a couple of things. You want to make sure that you have a record of your version so that you're not subject to a version of that meeting that the other side puts out. Right. Uh, that's a real danger. And that's just kind of classic statecraft, right? That's just common sense, uh, common sense statecraft. And you also, you want to have a record and a report out of what happened in these meetings so that the government knows where, you're, where we're going, mm-hmm. right? You know, and can assess, by the way, also what you heard from the foreign leaders so you can take advantage of you know, the vast kind of analytical skills that we have in the uh, we have, and I don't know what the root of that is. I don't know whether it's a whether he has uh, kind of a distrust of you know, the professionals and even the political appointees that he works with, uh, or there are other reasons that, he, that the president doesn't want to have these conversations, you know, kind of uh, any notes taken these conversations or or explored or analyzed by by the rest of the uh, by the rest of his senior people. But you know, you you have to be able to trust your most senior. People, yeah, uh, in these in these conversations, and it was a again, it's an odd aspect, Tommy, of Baffling. of this of these kinds of this relationship between the president and yeah. uh, and Vladimir Putin, which, by the way, is in sharp contrast with the relationships that he has with our European al- leaders, European leaders, and our closest allies, where the president is constantly critical, yeah, literally and, and, shoving them and, if you're and pushing, <laughs> and pushing away, right? And really not taking up this mantle of being the leader of the free world, but lat, but, but really, uh, unfortunately, raising questions about whether he feels more comfortable on the other side. Yeah, yeah. I keep saying this, but another issue that yeah. occupied mm-hmm. a lot of your time yeah. was North Korea. Yeah. I mean, I remember our first trip, I believe, in Europe. I think we were in Prague in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Uh, I believe the North Koreans tested a a missile. The president had to be woken up to address it and deal with it. I hope I'm getting this right. But, you know, it was a major, major threat to the point where uh, I believe President Obama, it's been reported that President Obama told President Trump in their final Oval Office meeting that this would be one of the biggest things he'd work on. Fast forward, I mean, Trump's about to embark on his second major summit with Kim Jong-un. I think all of us are happy that they're not tweeting about fire and fury and sort of smack talking our way into war. But I think I know you're worried about the trajectory of these talks, and I was curious why that is. Yeah, yeah I mean, you'd have to. It is a good thing that the tensions have been decreased. Yeah, uh, but a lot of those tensions have been built up by President Trump during <laughs> right. during, uh, during the course of the first part of his administration. But that's a good thing, and I think it's a good thing that we have direct conversations going on between the United States and North Korea. And uh, I think highly, for example, as well of our special envoy Steve Began, yeah, uh, who is who's now the you know the chief diplomat, if you will, leading up the, uh, the conversations with the, uh, with the North Koreans. But I am worried about the specifics and the direction for this reason. One, uh, it was clear coming out of the Singapore summit that, in fact, the North Koreans had not agreed to the concept of a complete uh, irreversible denuclearization of its program uh, in, uh, in North Korea. They didn't agree to the classic language. They had a different formulation which essentially meant that they were looking towards a longer-term denuclearization that was linked to what are pulling back and the South Koreans pulling back uh, in, various, in various respects. So we didn't get the kind of, kind of core commitment that we had insisted on for many, many years. Yeah. That, that, that wasn't in the documents that came on. The second thing is that you, you have had a situation where you haven't had nuclear tests and you haven't had missile tests uh, for a period of time. 
But that doesn't mean the program's frozen. Yeah. And so you've had the Secretary of State testify in front of the Congress. You had a report put out by a, a prominent uh, st- student in North Korea, Sid Hecker, Stanford University, just this past week, that says that the North Koreans are continuing to develop missile material, hmm. um, which the more you develop, the more potential weapons you have. There have been reports and actually overhead imagery put out by CSIS mm-hmm. and uh, Victor Cha, who was going to be the ambassador right, of South Korea, right. showing a number of missile bases, missile bases that are being uh, hardened and protected going forward. So the bottom line is, again, not going to know details, I think that the bottom line is that the program continues. So when the president says, I'm not in a hurry, we'll see how long it takes, you know, that's an analytical mistake. Mm-hmm. It's an analytical mistake because it makes a difference how many weapons the North Koreans develop. It makes a difference from a whole variety of issues, including nonproliferation risk and missile defense risk. Right. But if we have a kind of an open-ended negotiation and the North Koreans continue to run the program, we're going to put ourselves at the end of the day in a much more difficult circumstance. And we likely are headed towards a circumstance where we end up having to accept North Korea as a country with a lot of nuclear weapons. Yeah. So some sort of freeze and cap in what they're doing during the pendency of the negotiations seem to me to be kind of absolutely essential moving forward here. So we need to have, when they meet at the end of February, we need to have more details here and hopefully a stop in the program during the pendency of the negotiations. That was certainly what we did in the, in the Iran, in the Iran right, circumstance. Yeah. Right. When you look around the world, you, you pick up the New York Times in the morning and read the international section, what do you see, what various geopolitical trends worry you? What do you think we're not talking about enough? You know, I don't think we've kind of fully appreciated the, the major change, which is the reemergence of, of great power competition and the need to develop a strategy to deal with it, principally with respect to China. And as I said earlier, I don't think we're having anywhere near the conversation that we need to have about the missing piece of China policy, which is what's the United States going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, why isn't this a Sputnik moment for the United States? Mm-hmm. You know, you remember after you don't remember, but but <laughs> you've seen it. Since. You've heard about it, right? That, you know, in the late 1950s, when the when the Soviets launched a Sputnik satellite, uh, the United States undertook an enormous national effort that changed the way we taught math, that established NASA, that established kind of, you know really this golden triangle of technological and innovation development between the the government and research universities and private companies. It was an enormously important moment in, in American history. And we face a similar challenge, I think, at this point te- in terms of technology competition and continuing our lead. And so that, I think, is something we need to be talking about a lot. Yeah. The sec- and that includes, by the way, a lot of things. It includes, I said, R&D. It includes immigration policy, by the way. It includes infrastructure investment, education investment. And it includes a second thing I think we're not talking about enough. And that is the impact of technology, particularly artificial intelligence, robotics, and automation on labor markets. Hmm. You know, populism is not at its peak right now. Right. Uh, populism, in my judgment, is, is not, at this point, it's typically a cyclical thing in response to economic ups and downs. We have a much more fundamental populist challenge in the Western democracies underway right now. And one of the essential things to dealing with this going forward is having a really serious discussion about how we're going to manage the future of work in the face of technology. We just had a $2 trillion tax cut that was passed last year, okay? I don't remember a single discussion about investments no. uh, in this kind of essential thing for the government to do. Who's going to do this? Are companies responsible about it? Is the government responsible? You know, where are we going on this, right? That, that I think, is a, is a fundamental yeah. discussion that we're not having. 
I don't think we're having an, an, enough of a paying enough attention to cybersecurity. The president's given two stadium addresses. He's never mentioned cybersecurity. Really? Right. No. So, and why is that kind of, again, kind of this disconnect? Yeah. The intelligence services go in front of the Congress once a year, and they have over the last five or six years said that the principal threat facing the country, uh, one of the principal threats facing the country, is a cyber threat. Right. And yet the president really hasn't, uh, hasn't mentioned it. They disestablished the cybersecurity coordinator job in the White House, which I think was a real mistake. Yeah. Right? It is not possible to have an all-in-government effort to protect the country on cybersecurity and develop cyber policy without having it driven from the center. It's too hard. There are too many divergent interests in the government. There are too many different capabilities in the government. It has to be driven from the center, and we've disestablished it. You know, and the president really hasn't talked about kind of the basics that we needed to make ourselves a more resilient society. So I think that's one where I'm concerned that we're no, we don't have the kind of focus. And instead, of course, we've had this dramatic focus on the southern border, yeah. which was never mentioned as a threat no. by the intelligence services when they no. went in front of the when sure they went in front of the Congress. And I think last time, I think we're heading towards having an important conversation about nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about that. I, I saw recently that Elizabeth Warren and Adam Smith, Congressman Adam Smith, Senator Elizabeth Warren, have introduced legislation that says, quote, it is the policy of the United States to not use nuclear weapons first, or a so-called no-first-use policy. Yeah. What do you make of that? Well, I think it's an important discussion to have, you know. Um, there are, and that, that's a complicated issue. It's a complicated issue in terms of assurances that we have given allies mm -hmm. in terms of extended deterrence and their being able to rely on the United States to defend them. So that was including like Japan, through, yeah, South right, Korea. And, and in Europe, right? Europe. Including in, in the event of attack, right? Mm -hmm. And so those are, those are important kinds of conversations to have. I think they're important conversations to have about, you know, what the United States would do in the face of a biological attack, for right. example. Okay. But it's an important conversation, I think, that they're driving to have given the development of our conventional weapons, which are substantial and can address a lot of these, a lot of these issues. So I think that they're, they're driving an important conversation, but it's part of something bigger. Yes. You know, I oversaw the coordination of, if you will, the 2010 nuclear posture review that we right, did. Right. And, you know, President Obama's driving principle in that nuclear posture review, indeed, and it's been the driving principle of most presidents over the last half century, has been to reduce U.S. reliance on nuclear weapons. And I fear the administration is moving in a different direction, yeah, right, where they're yeah. trying to establish types of nuclear weapons which they, quote-unquote, see as more usable, right? Lower yield, more usable nuclear weapons. And I think blurring this distinction between nuclear weapons and conventional weapons really is a really important policy for us to address, right? And to have a president of the United States, as, this, as President Trump did the other night at the State of the Union address, really kind of welcome an arms race, saying mm -hmm. to, to the Russians, you know, if you want to have an arms race, go out intermediate-range missile capabilities, we'll bring it on. We'll have it. Yeah. That is not the direction to yeah. go in, Tommy, right? I mean, this is, so it's, we've seen here, this is this change, right, from a policy that drove hard towards reducing reliance on nuclear weapons as part of the national arsenal and limiting sharply the context in which you would ever use nuclear weapons and having a realistic conversation about this, I think is really an important thing to do. So that the conversation that Senator Warren and Congressman Smith are are driving here is an important conversation to have and, and to ask ourselves whether it is that kind of moment. You have also have to ask yourself where it would fit in the negotiations and things like mm -hmm. that. But it's a, I'm concerned about the direction in which the Trump administration is driving uh, the nuclear discussion. Yeah, me too. Speaking of things that make me concerned about the Trump administration, uh, John Bolton is now sitting in your old office. 
The things I know about him based on what I've read is he seems to be taking a lot of trips and sort of serving as an emissary. It seems like he's really skinnying down meetings or moving away from the traditional principles committee process that you'd mentioned earlier and, and locking people out of all of government conversations or what should be all of government conversations. He's also tweeting more about, you know, like regime change in Venezuela. Yeah. Do you have an impression of his tenure so far or yeah. things they're working on? Listen, a, a couple of things. One, every president designs the White House that he or she uh, thinks best works best for them. That's their first point. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. Ultimately, every president gets the people that he or she is most comfortable with. And, you know, so you can have conversations about different kinds of people and their effect on the president and moderating the president. Ultimately, ultimately, presidents get the team that they want. And uh, the president seems uh, seems comfortable with Ambassador Bolton uh, at this point. So that's that's the first mega point. And as part of my introduction to this answer... It's always easier from the outside yeah, yeah, okay, take shots. to take shots at and criticize people who are doing these jobs, which you and I know from personal experience are enormously difficult jobs yeah, brutal. Uh, and uh, with tremendous amounts of responsibility. That's the first point. The second point is that the government is not staffed to the extent that it needs to be. Uh, and that is a real failure. It's interesting. It had its roots in the transition. Mm-hmm. It has its roots in President Trump's management style. We had a busted transition here. Yeah. And I, I wasn't, I was part of the other transition that ended it on, on election day. But we now have a book by the person who ran the <laughs> yeah. Trump transition, Governor, former Governor Christie of New Jersey, uh, which I think is probably the best window we have to date yeah. what happened. And it was really kind of a, all the work that had been done, preparing names for people for, for um, jobs, uh, planning, thinking about the, how, the opening gambit of the administration was all literally, I think, thrown in the trash barrel. Yeah. Going forward, it is really important for people who want to be president to think hard about how they would transition to governing yeah. uh, because a lot of the roots of problems can be found in that failure. You know, I've done three transitions. Some have been better than others. Uh, but that's a real failure. So, so, so it's the, the place isn't staffed uh, the way it should be. Third is that you know, process would help this administration, frankly. It would. And I've heard the same kinds of reports, right, that you're, that you're talking about, that there aren't as many kind of interagency sessions where policies are fully ventilated, right, where mm-hmm. the, all the thinking of the government's kind of brought to the table and the, and the president gets the best options. If that's not taking place, it's a mistake, and you won't get as, as keen and as good a kind of national interest outcomes as you want. Now, we've seen examples of this where the president, for example, has announced that he wants to pull all the U.S. troops out of Syria. Now, that's a perfectly legitimate conversation to have and yeah. a per- per- perfectly legitimate policy issue to be discussed. But we also now know that it wasn't discussed, for example, with the head of CENTCOM. That's crazy. Uh, you know, and kind of the military leadership, right? And he's just not going to get the kind of quality decisions that the American people deserve if you don't do that. So I would, if, if I were advising, I would advise to kind of get back to kind of some regular order here. It's essentially a system that was put in place by General Scowcroft and Bob Gates during the Bush 41 administration. And it's, it does, it's not perfect, but it's been exercised a lot. Yeah. Uh, and so this kind of not have not seeking out views that may disagree with yours, uh, making decisions without process, having the president announce things, and then having the government catch up. You'll confuse allies, you confuse the government, and you're not going to get best case outcomes. No, you're not. My final question for you, which is uh, annoyingly a two-parter. When you think about, you know, let's say the next president will not be Donald Trump and it will be in 2020. Mm-hmm. What issues do you think he or she is going to face? And in preparation for that presidency, like what would you like to see 
Democratic candidates talking about on foreign policy yeah. when they hit the trail. Because, you know, I think unfortunately, look, fortunately, maybe elections tend to be domestic. Really, they tend to be about dumb bullshit like emails, but that's a side point. But I would love to see foreign policy more front and center. And I wonder if there are ideas you think should be talked about. Yeah, of course. Um, a couple of things. One is that I do think that the key to a strong and effective U.S. national foreign policy is a strong domestic economic circumstance. Mm-hmm. Uh, the relationship between our ability to project abroad, to lead abroad, is, is absolutely and inextricably related to the strength of our economy. And so I do think this conversation about the future of work, investment in uh, the kinds of things that we need in the future, mm-hmm. I think people will look back on this period and ask this question, how possibly could it be that the United States didn't invest heavily in infrastructure when they can borrow money at almost zero? Yeah and do things that are going to get a certain return. So I think that kind of domestic renewal conversation, Tommy, particularly taking into account technology. You know, we have these conversations about trade, and trade has had impacts, negative impacts, in communities in the United States. There's no doubt about that. But it's not at the same scale, frankly, as these technological impacts are going to be. And so that, I I would like to see a lot of discussion about that. I consider that to be a national security discussion. That's the kind of thing that, that keeps the society together, you know, uh, and gives us a kind of strong economy going forward. Mm-hmm. Second, a lot more discussion about democracy and values. You know, the United States is a special country, and we have our flaws and we have made mistakes, but the style of leadership, the values-based leadership that the United States has undertaken since World War II has worked spectacularly to our benefit, right? And it's been, been to the benefit of the world, and we've lost that discussion. You know, for example, you know, you look around the world, you look in Asia, for example, uh, not to talk about values and democracy really pulls back and, and deprives us of one of our strongest tools, frankly, uh, in the world. So I think that, that conversation about the pressure that democracy is under, and it is under pressure. It's under pressure from technology. It's under pressure from Russian interference. It's under pressure from populism. Mm-hmm is an important conversation to have. And I would like to see our candidates talk more directly about that because I don't believe the United States has undertaken the kind of leadership we need to undertake in this, uh, in this area. Third is that we need to really kind of reacquaint ourselves with the value of allies. It's a unique, it really is a unique American asset. And we have had a really kind of a diminution in our, the quality of our allied relationships, I think, the last couple of years. And that'll be really kind of front and center going yeah. forward. And... I also think last, in terms of foreign policy, it is also, and this will happen, I hope, during the course of the campaign, and it won't surprise you when you hear me say this, uh, given who my spouse is, but it really is important to keep a focus on the importance of women's empowerment around the world. Uh, It is really key to economic performance. It's key to the overall positive performance of societies, and I hope we have a lot of discussion about that, I think, in, in the context of our foreign policy thing. As you know, I should... You know, my wife is Kathy Russell, who is yeah. the U.S. Ambassador for Women's Issues. And it's, um, it is absolutely essential, I right. think, to have, yeah, that, yeah. to have that conversation. And I, last, I do hope we have this nuclear discussion yeah, uh, and, where we're, and where we're going on nuclear weapons. Yeah. Well, credit to Senator Warren for coming out early and talking about something big and weighty and, and pushing this forward. Yeah, agree or disagree. I think you're exactly yeah. right. I think yeah. having the conversation come front and center, it's important because it's been happening. You know, yeah. uh, you had the, the, the Trump national, you know, nuclear posture review, which had a lot of continuity, but it had changes, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially, the key change is around this, are you pursuing a policy which, which uh, 
reduces as much as possible reliance on nuclear weapons, are you, or are we going in a different direction? Right, right. Some of this is amnesia, by the way. You know, I, I was going to say, I feel like I'm back in your that beautiful office you had, right? There, where you'd walk in. There were the couches on the left. There was that nice table on the right, sort of glass colored. We do a lot of meetings there. So you said about eight people. Yeah. And then your desk was just past it, and there were probably 35 binders as thick as your fist, full of you know, the most classified material on the planet that you were reading through. I mean, this is like old times. And every time that Tommy Beter came in, <laughs> say, I knew this was not going to be a good day. <laughs> you'd, say, you'd say, hide that shit. And now I have you at a plywood uh, mock-up of a Resolute desk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're yelling at the microphones. It's fun. <laughs> Tom, thank you so much. Tommy, it's great to see you. And, and congratulations on all the success of your Thanks. operation here. It's a great team. This was, I literally could do this all day. And um, congratulations on the work that you're doing to get people interested in politics and turning on participating. It really is really important because I said during the course of this discussion, we cannot take the democracy for granted. It is under pressure and we can do something about it, including, by the way, something we should do a whole conversation on, which is civic education in the United States. Uh, We can do a lot about it that we're not doing now. I hope it is part of the discussion. Thanks, Tom. Agreed. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Pod Save the World. Share it with your friends. You know you want to. You know they love it when you spam them with random links to podcasts and rate and review us in the iTunes store because it helps people find the show. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. Talk to you soon. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.